In this age of text messaging and instant messaging, we have lost the art of letter writing. Back when I was a boy, I didn't even uh, realize it, but uh, telephones were such an unusual device uh, that you didn't use it unless you had to use it. You certainly wouldn't call long distance. That would cost extra money. Even calling locally, people uh, would tend not to use unless there was something special. And so I discovered after my mother had passed that though we lived in Upland and her mother lived in Los Angeles, she wrote her mother every day. And hence, uh, we have each a biography through the lens of my mother as to what she thought of each one of us. Uh, so what a gold mine of opportunity to uh, read through letters from my mother to her mother, including uh, explanations of what I was like and what her thoughts and her hopes and her dreams would be for me and how she prayed for me. In the New Testament, however, we do have examples of well-composed, well-thought-out, bathed-in-prayer letters. Someone else's mail saved for us, for us to learn from them in order to be able to grow spiritually. And I'd like us to look at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, both this morning and tonight, because I think many of the exhortations that the Apostle Paul gives to this church are applicable to us in our American situation. It's true that human nature has not changed, uh, but culture has, time has, government has, and yet God does not change, and his work in us is the same. Uh, but it requires us to be responsive to the apostles' prayers on our behalf and that we would listen clearly to him and hear our foibles, our weaknesses, the mistakes that we make, and hear the exhortations that come through him from the Holy Spirit to us, asking us to be responsive. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you know much about uh, the church at Corinth, you realize uh, they were a problem church uh, for the apostle. Uh, he spent more time with them than he did many others. He actually stayed with them 18 months in the original church planting. And that he wrote three, four, five letters to them. Uh, great lengthy letters in which almost more so than we see in 
letters to other churches, he pours out his heart to them. Like a father, he tries to father them. Like a mother, he tries to approach them gently, kindly, almost like a mother who would nurse a child, pleading with them to listen carefully to what he has to say. And much like a parent, he begins by complimenting them as to what the Lord has given them by his grace. He says, he gave you an amazing amount of gifts by grace, verse 4, so that you were enriched in him in all speech. Corinth is in Greece, and the ability to speak well, the whole concept of rhetoric and argument uh, was admired greatly by the Greeks. And God gave the members of the church at Corinth the ability to speak well. Knowledge and wisdom were again admired by the Greeks and God gave them spiritual knowledge. They could speak well, they knew a lot, and he says, I can even see Christ at work in you. I can see the testimony that you give regarding Christ through your lives coming out. And most importantly in his compliments, he says in verse 7, you are a well-rounded, well-formed church in the sense that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. You have them all. You think about many churches, there are holes all over in which they say, we have no one who does that. We have no one who has this as a calling. We have no one who has this ministry of all these things we ought to be doing with no one to do it. But that was not the case with Corinth. They had all of the gifts. As he reminds them that we live in expectation of the imminent return of Christ. And as he goes deeper into the book, he's going to ask them to not misuse these gifts or abuse them or apply them selfishly for their own benefit. And causes them to continuously think ahead to what we're actually working for and longing for, the return of Christ. In verse 8, he says, he will confirm you to the end. Your ultimate outcome is you will stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded. You will be free from accusation, blameless at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this should be our focus as well. We should be focusing on what are we doing because Christ could return at any moment. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God has ministered to you faithfully. So if there are problems in the church, don't blame our heavenly father. He has brought you into fellowship with him. He has enabled you to have fellowship with his son. He has enabled you to have fellowship with one another. In fact, that's how we have fellowship with each other in spite of our differences and personal preferences is because of our fellowship with Jesus Christ, we are unified in the body and that we can have a ministry of encouraging and helping each other. 
If I were only to read the letter this far, I would be so pleased with what I was hearing about the Corinthians. He now turns to some severe concerns that he has for them. We have one son that still lives with us. Uh, he, he didn't even know how old he's turning next month. He's turning 23 next month. He's a college graduate, has not yet landed his uh, career job, is working part-time and doing uh, <clears throat> temporary work uh, while he's seeking to land that job. Still living at home, has a serious girlfriend. We like her very much. I imagine they at some point will get married, but she's applied to law school. He's not making a lot of money. This could be a long way. So, since he's living at home, uh, we invite him to have meals with us, and when he's not having meals with her, he does sit at our table. He was with us last night, and we continuously exhort him, though he's nearly 23. We keep involved in his life, and in fact, we're involved in all of our children's lives, even though they're married and have kids and the like. But he brought up to us last night as we were exhorting him, I'm 23, and I said, not till next month, but... And he was basically saying, 23, why are you telling me these things? In other words, he's of the impression that he should know it all by now, that he's doing it all by now, and that all of the input from his parents is really not relevant to how he would like to decide to live his own life. Each of us is so independent that each of us would probably not want anyone else to speak into our life and to encourage us as to what would be the wise way to live. But friends, I tell you, the scripture from beginning to end gives us example after example of how we're not only to allow our parents to speak into our lives, not only to allow our brothers and sisters to speak into our lives, but to allow fellow believers with different gifts and different perspectives and outside, perhaps, of even our normal orbit to speak into our lives. This is supposed to be healthy and helpful to us. So allow the apostle to point out some issues they have. Verse 10. Sounds so American what he says next. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. May it never be. Oh my goodness, look at this. He says, you should be in agreement with each other. There shouldn't be any division among you. You should have the mind of Christ, which would then give you the same mind, the same perspective, the same desires, the same goals, and you would make the same decisions, he says, the same judgments. But unfortunately, he says, you're fighting among each other. For good and for ill... I'm on social media. I have thousands of friends who interact with me on social media. And I just say to myself, why can we not agree? Uh, what is it about us that we are 
pulling further and further apart and having completely different perspectives. My relatives have different perspectives than me. In fact, I would even go so far as to say my children, of which I have five, have different perspectives than me. And these perspectives are all over the map about all kinds of different things. Now, can we get along with different perspectives? Absolutely, we could, because those perspectives led by the Spirit could become input that would be helpful to the decision-making of us all if we remain unified and we're seeking leadership from the Spirit. But many of us aren't interested in being unified. Wrongly so, of course. Many of us are interested in developing our own mindset and then foisting that on everyone else and forcing everyone else to agree with who? Me. I want you to agree with me. That's completely selfish and stupid if you thought about it for a moment. You would say, like, why would I always be right? My wife, who's thankfully not here, would, would tell you that he is not always right. <laughs> she may think she's always right. I, I, I wouldn't dare even venture into that idea. <clears throat> but it is a human foible because of the fall and the inherited sin that we have and then the practice sin that we do that we end up severely disagreeing with each other and find it almost impossible to get along with each other. And this is wrong. And this should not be true in the church because he has made us one and has made it possible for us to be one as we receive from him his word, as we receive from him the indwelling Holy Spirit, as we walk or keep in step with the Spirit. If we are leaning on him, we're going to receive the same leading so that we will be led together though the ministry will be carried out by the variety of us because not all of us have the same gifts. In fact, there's so many that we are very unlikely to be sitting next to a person who has the same gift that we do. We're going to have different gifts, different members of the body in which whether we're eyes, ears, hands, feet, each one of us is needed in the ministry of the body. But then why can't we get along? Here's one of the big problems, he says. You have divided into factions, verse 12. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, well, I'm of Paul. Now, they're saying, I'm of Apollos. Uh, Paulus was a famous, eloquent uh, preacher, a friend of Paul's. I'm of Cephas. That's the Aramaic name of Peter, who you know to be a leading spokesperson among the original disciples. Or, this is a really good one, I am of Christ. These political parties within this local church are not the actual names of them, nor their leaders. By the time you get to chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I was just speaking figuratively. I'm not going to actually give you the real names of the people you're really following in the body. But you can count four here. At least four political parties, and I don't mean political in the sense of American politics. I'm speaking of church politics within one local city church, four 
parties, factions, probably it's easiest for us to think of them as political parties because we understand that in our own culture, that are so divided as if you can't agree on anything. Like right now, you watch the major parties in the United States, and I'm talking about political parties this time, they will disagree on almost everything. And you can say, like, how can you guys live in the same country? How can you guys love the same country and be so different in everything you believe to be true? It ought not be that way in the church in which we divide into groupings in which we follow the faction of a particular leader within the body. He says, verse 13, has Christ become divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he goes on a a three-verse excursus as to say, I don't think I baptized hardly any of you. And then he remembers, well, okay, I baptized a couple of you, but uh, that doesn't make any difference. What he's interested in saying is you don't follow a person because he's the one who led you to the Lord and he's the one that baptized you. I actually got in a conversation with believers. We were at a baptism, and it got us talking about baptism. And though I thought what was written here seemed silly, people started to brag about who it was who actually placed them under the water and brought them back up again as if that was a big deal. No, they were naming famous people. And it's as if they felt that in somehow they rose to a higher level of status within the body of Christ based on the name of the person who had baptized them. Can you imagine? All of us are just servants of the Lord. Paul's about to say that. I'm just one of the servants of the Lord. Don't you go around and say, well, Paul baptized me. He's glad so few people could actually say that. We grasp at the smallest little things to say, I'm better than the next person. These things are not coming from God. These things are coming from our fleshly nature, our sinful nature, and it divides us. So often we're so unaware of how selfish we are and how focused we are in pushing ourselves forward to become more important than the person next to us. Not true. It is not true, according to God, that any one of us is more important than the other. God is God, and we are not. Remember, he just said, I didn't die for you on the cross. Verse 18, this is speaking about the one who actually died. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message that we give regarding Christ dying on the cross does not ring as attractive to almost anybody. The Jews did not recognize Jesus as their promised Messiah because he didn't accept their invitation to become king and to liberate them from Rome. All they wanted was a political liberator. They didn't want to actually submit to God. And the Corinthians, on the basis of their backgrounds, would not be attracted to a humble person who put the interests of others beyond his own. And so 
Paul says, in a sense, the gospel, the truth, the good news that we give about how God has offered salvation to us almost seems like nonsense to the average person the moment that they see it. He says, it seems like the cross is foolishness because it seems like Christ was defeated by being killed. And as, a, as a child, when I used to hear that he could have called a myriad of angels to have rescued him and to come down from the cross, in fact, some of his crucifiers were calling you, if you really are the Son of God, come down from the cross. As a child, I used to cheer, yeah, come down from the cross, don't do it, prove who you are. He proved who he was by submitting to that humiliating death so that God the Father would turn the tables on those who were seeking to destroy any means by which we could be saved and he used that opportunity of the Jews and Gentiles coming together to destroy Christ out of hate to pour out his wrath towards us and our sins onto his only begotten son, God come in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man who lived a perfect life. He was made sin on our behalf so that God righteously could punish sin and he would be our substitute taking our place out of love paying our penalty so that if we would believe and trust ourselves to him, the debt that I owed would be paid by him and I could go free. The most marvelous story, the most beautiful story ever told, and yet a story based on the warp of our culture and our world and our sin seems like foolishness. Who would allow himself to be destroyed to save others? We'd say, like, surely was he not defeated? No, he was raised from the dead on the third day. God accepted his sacrifice, and he still lives today. Jesus Christ is alive because Jesus Christ succeeded in paying for our sins. We who are being saved come to realize that that death on the cross is the power of God at work. And hence, go back a verse to verse 17. Paul says, God didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Right now, what I'm doing is mostly expositing the scripture, explaining Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And so in many ways, I'm teaching but the most important thing we do when we open the word of God is we preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel is why we are still here. In fact, the disciples pled with Christ, take us home to be with you in heaven. We'd much rather be there. And he says, no, you will be my witnesses. I am leaving you behind to be my witnesses, to tell people how they can have forgiveness of their sins. Notice he says it's not in cleverness of speech. So we don't try to trick anyone. We don't try to fool anyone. There's no cleverness here. 
the Corinthians, the Greeks, greatly enjoyed rhetoric or the ability to argue well and to outsmart your opponent in a debate. He says, we're not debating, we're not tricking anyone, we're not trying to outdo anyone, we're just trying to tell you the straight out truth. It's not cleverness of speech. It's the cross of Christ. We're not trying to avoid that. The defeat or apparent defeat of Christ at the cross was actually what was necessary for us to be saved because our sins, our debt, our penalty had to be paid for. But praise God, it was paid for by a substitute. God in the person of Jesus Christ, God the man, the God-man died in our place to pay for our sins. So the wisdom of God is different than the so-called wisdom of men. Our wisdom is foolishness. We have this idea that I can save myself by behaving well enough for God to accept me. Not true. None of us can behave well enough in order to cover the sin that we've inherited from Adam, our forefather, the guilt with which we were born, the personal acts of sin that we commit, none of us can outdo that by behaving well enough. We need forgiveness, and God is offering forgiveness. If we stop being so self-centered, so interested in preserving ourselves, so self-seeking, so self-serving, if we will instead turn to him and say, I humbly need your forgiveness, then he will forgive us. Paul then quotes from Isaiah 29, 14, about the time when Israel thought that the way to protect themselves against Syria and the invasion that was coming was to form an alliance with Egypt, which greatly offended God. What? I can't protect you. You have to make an alliance with Egypt to protect yourself against Syria. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? One of the striking parts about kids growing up, and I've been through this five times, as they come to an age in which what you used to do for them, they won't allow you to do any longer. Like get dressed in the morning. I can remember dressing my kids when they were real little, and there comes a point, and it's different for every age, but it, there comes a point in which they actually say, no, I do it myself. And they'll put their shoes on, and you have to learn how to tie your shoes even to go to kindergarten. They're not going to let you go to kindergarten unless you can tie your shoes. And so you, you tell them about the little rabbit hole and running around the hole and going down and all that. Kind of, you can teach them these little lessons as to how to tie a shoe, but they want to do it themselves. We're built to say, I can do it. But that can be destructive when it comes to relationship with God in which you say, I don't want a gift from you. I don't want your grace that I don't deserve. I want to earn what I get. And if you want me to be with you in heaven someday, let me earn it. I can do it myself. Friends, that's the foolishness of man. That's the lie of the devil. Not one of us could do anything to merit God's forgiveness and God's welcome into perfect heaven. 
Where's that wise man? Where's that scribe? Where's that debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? Verse 21, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Why does he call the message foolish? To hurt our ears in one sense. To have us say, really, that's how we feel about the gospel, that it seems like foolishness? Because why would God humble himself to become one of us in the first place? And then why, living a perfect life, would he allow himself to be rejected? Why would he succumb to such a horrible death? Why, why, why? It seems like defeat. We would say, like, that's not the way I would win. But he's not seeking our wisdom from our world according to Satan's lies. He's telling us what his wisdom is. And it is contrary to what we'd expect. Because it's selfless. God is worthy of all honor and glory, and yet he is selfless. In creating us, he set his love upon us, and though we rebelled against him, he still loves us. He could have just said, gone with all of you, but he says instead, At my own personal sacrifice, I will make provision to save you. And so the first person of the Trinity asked the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, asked God the Son to veil his glory, to hold back the independent exercise of his divine attributes, to add to his deity humanity, to come and become one of us. And you'd say, well, why would he become one of us? So we could relate to him. So we would know what God is like because he became a human being just like us and lived a perfect life, showed us true love, showed us true wisdom in the way in which he taught and was willing to sacrifice his life in order to save us. True humility, true sacrifice, not self-seeking, not self-serving. Those things are destructive, but true love. Verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, but God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The requirement to receive the gift is to accept it. Have you ever received a gift that you did not accept? That's called regifting, in which you get a gift at Christmas, in which you say, like, I'm sure there's someone else who could use this better than I could. I don't really want this. And you just give that same gift to someone else. We have that in our culture. Where you say, his terms are too great, or his terms aren't great enough. He's asking us to believe him. He's asking us to trust him. He's asking us to receive a gift. I've likened it before to receiving a check written out to me 
in which is just a piece of paper unless I deposit it in the bank and let that draft command money to move from someone else's account to my account. Otherwise, it just stays a piece of paper. To this day, I still have a check I've never cashed because it was a friend of mine who was trying to pay my parking ticket when we went surfing. It was a $60 parking ticket. And he says, I don't want you to have to pay. And he wrote me a check, and I would not and still have not ever cashed that check. And why? Because of my pride. That's why I won't take his love. I won't take his generosity. Why? It's stupid, I know, but it's pride that keeps me from cashing that check. And it's the same thing with the expression of God's love to us in which he offers us salvation if we will believe. And you'd say, no, let me do something hard. And he says, you could never do anything hard enough to earn my favor. I'm asking you to trust me, believe me, transfer trust from yourself to me, and I will freely give you eternal salvation and relationship with me. I will forgive your sins and I will make you whole, make you who you've always wanted to be, a full-fledged human being that knows and understands and loves and is changed to love other people the way God has loved you and me. He says, it's funny how Jews are constantly asking for signs. They want proof through miracles. Greeks are searching for wisdom through philosophy. But he just says, we just preach Christ crucified. And he understands that that message may not seem, from Madison Avenue kinds of techniques, the best way to advertise, to preach Christ crucified, but it's the truth. And the truth hurts sometimes, but the truth is truth. God made foolish the wisdom of this world, and we should not soften or change the gospel at all. Just tell it the way it was told to us, the way the scripture tells it to us. Jesus Christ died on the cross to make it possible for the Father to forgive my sins and to make me clean before him. So we preach Christ crucified, though to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, and that's an expression of how God draws people to himself. He calls you to come to him and receive forgiveness. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. If you want to know what God is like, Study the life of Jesus. Study what he did. Study what he said. This is God as one of us. God come in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God to us. I studied theology all my life, and yet uh, I had my own little children who were asking hard questions and wanted to understand. And it's hard sometimes when we use analogies that are metaphorical and, and illustrative and aren't very helpful to them. 
If you, if you say to a child below fourth grade or so, invite Jesus Christ into your heart, they, they view him as about the size of a little G.I. Joe, and they'll say, like, he's right here in my heart, right in the center of my thorax. They don't use words like that, but that's what they mean. They mean he's inside there, living inside of my cardiovascular pump. Those illustrations actually hurt us as we're trying to explain the love of God to someone else. Jesus Christ was so liked by the kids that they'd pile on his lap. They weren't afraid of him at all. Beard and all, they weren't afraid of him. Everybody had beards back then. But they loved him. The disciples were like, I don't think this is appropriate. Let's hold him back. And Jesus says, no, let him come. Let him pile all over me. Kids loved Jesus because he taught them in a loving, simple way through stories. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. He's wrestling with these Corinthians who by their culture and by their education think they know better than God. And so he shifts it over to the way in which they subtly think about it and says, it seems foolish to you, doesn't it? It doesn't seem wise to you, does it? But don't soften or change the gospel message that God has given. Jesus Christ died to save sinners, of which I am chief. And hence, as I simply believe, as I cash the check, as, as I receive his gift, he can forgive my sins and give me eternal life with him and awaken me to spiritual relationship with me. He now says, survey, survey your local church and see what kind of people you have in them. He says, verse 26, consider your calling, brethren, that they're not many wise according to the flesh. In other words, from human perspectives, even you as Greeks, you Corinthians, they're not that many wise guys. You, you think you're so wise. Not really. Not many mighty, you'd probably rank yourself as a group of strong individuals. But I'll tell you, there's not that many mighty, not that many noble. Now, all this is rather humbling. If you get into sports, though, like if you like baseball or football and you start talking about the various players and the various teams, you realize every player has his weaknesses and every player is going to disappoint you at one time. And you begin to say, like, I guess they're all human, aren't they? Yeah, and so are we. There are not many wise, mighty, or noble among us, but God is willing to work with the people he calls who receive his offer of salvation. Verse 27, God has chosen what appears to you to be the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Now you have a reason. Why does he choose a means to save us by which we'd say, I didn't think that was a very good idea. Have God become a man, live perfectly among us, and let people reject him and kill him viciously in a bloody, embarrassing way? Why would you do that? And we might try to sit in judgment about God and his plans. No, God has purposely chosen what, to our perspective, would seem like the foolish things of the world to shame us into admitting that we're not very wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen. In other words, he works 
through what seem to us like broken methods or broken people. He's chosen the despised things and the despised people, that the things that are not, that he may nullify the things that are, are. And why does he do this? If you wondered why he chose the simple, why he chose such humble methods, so that no man may boast before God. Now you might have wondered why the exhortation at the beginning of this message, in the beginning of this chapter, was about, hey, you guys need to agree with each other. Stop having divisions among you. You need to have the same mind, the same judgment. And then he goes into the gospel message and talks about how humble it is. And then he ends up and he says, the reason why the entire gospel message is all about humility is because that's what you need. From the moment of salvation throughout your entire experience as members of a church, whether it be in Corinth or Claremont, he's saying what you need is humility. Now tell me if that is not the truth. We need humility. Even the gospel message is meant to teach us humility so that no man may boast before God. Whether we're talking about how we're saved or talk about how we minister to each other's needs in the body, it's through humility. At its most basic, I can't save myself. I need God to save me. And hence, I must humble myself before God and say, I can't do it. Would you do it for me? For a child to admit that to a parent is a very hard thing to do. I just described my own children. I can remember my own childhood. I can do it. But there comes a point in which they say, I can't do it. I realize I can't do it. I realize I've made a mistake. I realize I've blown it. I realize I'm not worthy. I realize I need other people's forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And whether it's in life in a family or inside of a marriage or inside of work, or most importantly, how we are saved and how we function in the church, we have to say, I can't do it. Will you help me? Verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus Christ shows us God's wisdom. He shows us God is true and righteous and just. He shows us that we can be changed to be holy and set apart and serve him rather than serving ourselves. And he has bought us out of the slave market of sin and made us members of his family, yea, even his own children. We are adopted into God's family and become his sons and daughters. Verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. One of the social media I'm on is LinkedIn. You should watch people boast about themselves. I've never seen more qualified people in the world than reading people on LinkedIn. I'd say like, that guy should have a job. 
We should hire that guy. Oh, may we humble ourselves before the Lord, and may our boast be in the Lord and what he's done on our behalf. Oh, Father, we come before you thanking you for this well-thought-out, well-composed letter in which, led by your Spirit, Paul pours out his heart so humbly to admit that we naturally divide ourselves into factions, having our heroes following our leader in various political factions. And by doing that, we're denigrating even the gospel message. And I pray instead that we'd come to understand that the gospel message is your wisdom against our foolishness of saying that we can do it ourselves. Rather than being self-serving, self-seeking, and, and self-destructive, help us to put you first. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.